Matthew 10, 34. Think not, Jesus said, that I am come to send peace on the earth. I am not, to, I came not to send peace, but a sword. I want to speak to you on the polarizing power of the gospel. Please be seated. There are themes that I repeat in the history of our church, and I spoke on this theme on September 14th, 2016. The good news is, 2016, the good news is I cut out about seven pages of notes, or 2,300 or so words. The bad news is that I added a lot of other things to this theme. So I don't know how that works out, but hopefully well. Recently, in our church, we've been doing what Isaiah 54 describes of driving the stakes of truth deeper in our church. Isaiah 54, 2 is written uh, in the imagery of a married couple who's never had a child, a barren couple. And uh, so we need our church to grow. It's the will of God to grow. Amen. Amen. But we don't want to grow without strength. So the Lord sees this couple and he tells them to get ready for growth. The first thing he tells them to is, is to enlarge the place of your tent. Go out and clear some more ground. You've got this little teeny tent. The two of you have lived in it. You don't have any kids. So now the first thing I need you to do is plan for growth and clear some ground. And we hope uh, soon next year we'll be clearing a lot of ground at Atlanta West. And then he said, I want you to stretch forth the curtains of your habitations or your dwelling." Run down to Home Depot or Lowe's or somewhere, 84 Lumber, and buy some tent material because you need bigger walls. We're going to have a bigger tent than you've ever had. And then the Lord told them to spare not. Don't be cheap. Don't be small-minded. Thank God that at Atlanta West, we expanded our vision for growth uh, than our original plan. So then he said, I want you to lengthen your cords. You're going to have a bigger tent. We're going to have to have longer tent cords if you've ever camped out in a real tent before, then you know that you need some tent cords and bigger tent, longer cords. And then he said, I need you to strengthen your stakes. Not some little bitty, skinny stake. I need it to be big and strong and deep into the ground. And I want you to strengthen those stakes. Bigger stakes drive them deeper. And the reasoning for this is the larger the tent, the more resistance to the wind. A little tent doesn't have nearly the resistance to the wind. But a really large tent, a giant tent, uh, the tent like Dr. Braden Anderson is preaching tent revivals in. It seats a thousand people. That's a big tent. And you better have some deep stakes to keep the wind from blowing it away. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about people that are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. It's not the same imagery of the tent, but it's the idea of false doctrine like a wind that blows against a life, a family, a church. And if you're going to grow, you also need to be strong and deep in truth so you're not blown away by the latest fad or idea or philosophy that comes through town. So the recent doctrinal teaching uh, guiding our church is deepening our stakes. But it is not just so we can be deeper or stronger. That's good in itself. But so that we can prepare our church for the growth that God is giving us. When people come to the Lord, they may not have a foundation of any church at all. They may have no religious background, no doctrinal literacy, and we want to be mature Christians. We want to be deep in faith, 
so we can guide them that they can be sound in faith, strong in the Lord, and be saved. So we're strengthening the foundation of apostolic doctrine. As I said on Sunday, believing matters, but what you believe matters even more, like the thickness of the frozen ice. It's good to believe you should have faith, but you need to believe in something that will support your weight in the judgment that will support your soul in the coming judgment of God. A little faith in the power of the gospel is superior to great faith in a powerless philosophy or a false doctrine. You can have faith in false doctrine. It will get you nowhere. Amen. So I want to talk about the power of the gospel to draw us to the Lord. But then that other aspect where there are times when the power of the gospel drives people away. In John chapter 12, Jesus spoke about his death. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And some people, we use this sometimes, you know, we're going to lift him up in praise and worship. And that's a good idea, but I don't like to quote this verse for that because this verse refers to his death. And you only have to go to the next verse to get the context. And if you read more than one verse, it helps you stay out of false doctrine or false ideas. This, he said, signifying what death he would die. Now, it seems ironic that in his death, he's lifted up on the cross, that he would draw all men to him. It was not the gory, bloody body of Jesus, but it was a demonstration of love for God so loved the world that has drawn the world to Jesus Christ. There is a spiritually magnetic power of the gospel to draw people to God. But there is also an opposite pole of the gospel that drives insincere people away. People who reject God and the gospel are driven away from him by the same truth that draws us to him. You may remember that Adam, after rejecting God, uh, was driven out of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, 24 says that. In Genesis 4, 14, Cain said of himself that you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth. We think of God who is love, drawing people to him. He draws people who are sincere, who are seeking him with all of his heart to him. But there's the other side of the gospel that in the sword example that Jesus gave, that sometimes it drives people away. And I'm saying this, and I'll go through this message, but to prepare us for the power of the gospel and to make sure that we're always on the side of embracing truth, of believing God, and not rejecting truth that God would show us in our life. Not just doctrinal truth of salvation, but maybe the truth that you need to go forgive someone or be reconciled to someone or make a wrong right that's way too old that you should have repented of and made restitution for a long time ago. Amen. When God speaks to us as his believers, as his people, we need to embrace truth and not reject it. So Cain is driven out from. So the same light, you can look at it this way, of the gospel that draws people to God 
also drives others away from him. And depending on our receptivity and response, the gospel will either draw us into a closer relationship with God or it will drive us away because of our rejection of him. So there's this word polarize. And uh, a long time ago when I was young, I heard people talk about polarizing and think about the poles of the earth, the North and South Pole and the poles of a battery and maybe how a magnetic force can either attract or repel. This is the same idea that this is the gospel is very powerful. You can't, you know, I've been using the word ambivalent for some reason lately, but you can't just kind of be neutral and be a double-minded person and stable in all your ways and ride the fence and, you know, not, I, I, God's okay, he's okay. That, that you cannot live for God straddling the fence of indecision. You cannot live your life half in, half out of the church. I've heard people say, you know, it's easy to live for God hard if you're really going after God with everything. That's easy to live for God like that. But it is very hard to live for God easy if you're going to be laid back and lackadaisical and just kind of come to God on your terms. Jesus Christ will cause you more problems than good if you just make him second, third place in your life. And this is not part of my notes, and I don't have time for too many side trails, but I've preached about this through the years a lot, but Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the idea of that is in building a building, the first stone that is laid is the cornerstone. It is a reference stone in the old-fashioned building. It's not just a ceremonial stone like it might be today. And every stone that is laid down the line horizontally has to line up to the cornerstone. And then as a wall goes up vertically, there's a plumb line the Bible talks about. But there is this cornerstone and everything is referenced back to it. Jesus is that in our lives. Every relationship in my life must be referenced back to Jesus Christ and his word and his lordship in my life. And if it doesn't align to the word of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, then I don't reject the cornerstone. I reject that relationship, that decision, that value, that practice. It doesn't have a place in my life. It doesn't equal that. That's why the Bible said the stone that was set at naught of you builders, the same has become the head of the corners, the chief cornerstone. So the Jewish people, when Jesus came, they rejected him because he didn't fit in their religious system. They tried to make him a teacher, a prophet. They tried to fit him in, and he didn't work. He made, they rejected him, cast him aside. But God made him the chief cornerstone. So in our lives, if you try to make Jesus anything but first, then all of a sudden you find yourself in a different relationship than being drawn toward God. So we want to make sure that we're on the side of this polar, this pulling toward God and not pushing away from God. The gospel that draws and drives away. Now, Jesus said that I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That doesn't sound like the Jesus we usually talk about. Because the Bible said in Isaiah 9 and 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
Well, in what ways is this true? Because the Bible is always true. And if a scripture seems to be in contradiction to another, then we probably do not understand it, the context of it. Because the Bible is a perfectly unified book without contradiction. Well, Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Colossians 1 and 20, he made peace by the blood of his cross. So we can say that he is the prince of peace, that we are aliens from God, sinners estranged from God, but he's reconciled us to God by his blood. He made peace. And in this sense, peace is not just a happy feeling, not that you're in some tranquil state. It means that before Jesus Christ's blood covered your sins, you were an enemy of God. You cannot get to God. But Jesus Christ, by his cross, made atonement, at one minute. He brought us back together with God. So he is a prince of peace in that he made peace between us and God by the blood of his cross. Amen. Acts chapter 10 says he came and preached peace. And Romans 14 says that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So he is the prince of peace. But then Jesus, it's in his own words. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, it's in red. When he says, think not, don't think that I have come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, the prophecy over Mary was that Jesus will be set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. He would be the decision point of history. Sometimes people have used the idea of a cross, you know, that that's the crossroads of life, that every decision really focuses on what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. Where, what role will he play in your life? Will it be Lord and Savior or your handyman or your, your problem solver? Or is he going to be Lord and Christ for you? Think that I am not come to send peace on the earth, I am not come to send peace, but a sword. So we know how Prince of Peace makes sense and is true. So how, how is this true? So if you examine the text, Matthew 10, you know, reading the Bible is really good to help make sense out of hard scriptures, right? And uh, there you can Google this, but the hard sayings of Jesus. There are some things that Jesus said that are challenging, like turn the other cheek. And I spoke on a theme like that not long ago. But Matthew 10, let me give you a little context, and you can go to the beginning of the chapter and like scan really fast. Jesus commissioned his disciples. He names them, by the way, in Matthew 10, and he sends them out to preach the gospel. He gives them power to go, and he tells them to travel light, that you're to pack with an overnight suitcase and don't take a bunch of stuff with you. Basically, that's what he says. And he told them in verse 11, when you go into a city or a house, you're to kind of read the receptivity of the people. If they accept you in, then you go and stay in that house, you stay in that city. But if you're rejected by those people, he said, if they don't receive you, this is verse 14, if they will not hear your words, then leave that city, depart out of, the, out of that city and shake the dust off your feet. And what does that mean? He said, I want you to just kind of Tell them kind of uh, by this demonstration that you've rejected this message. So now 
the blood is on you. It's not on us. We're shaking the dust off of our feet. And Jesus said in verse 15 that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, this is pretty powerful. And it's in the same chapter we're going to be talking about. I came to bring a sword because what you do with Jesus determines whether he's the prince of peace in your life or he's a sword in your life. And sort of division really is what that means. In verse 16, he tells them, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Verses 17 through 20, he said, I want you to be prepared for opposition uh, that you're going to face. You're going to be delivered up. And when you are, don't worry about what you say in that hour. The Holy Ghost is going to give you words to speak. It's my Father that is speaking in you. And then there's like 10 verses from 21 to 31 where Jesus talks about disloyalty even among family members. This is looking ahead to this idea that Jesus brings a sword. And you'll see this in the context as we walk through it. So I don't want to go through this whole passage, but there's brothers against brothers and fathers against child and children rising up against their parents and causing them to be put to death and hated of all men for my name's sake. But if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. And they're going to persecute you. In one city, you flee to another. And man, this is serious stuff, right? This is what he's preparing his disciples for. I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. And then he tells them in verses 24 and 25 that the servant is not above his master. This is the way they've treated me. So don't think that you're going to go to the job. You're going to go to your school. You're going to go into this world and that people who are rejecting Jesus are going to think you're the greatest person in the world because you represent Jesus to them. Your holy life is condemning if they don't want to come to the light. And we'll get into the light metaphor later, right? Anyway, the servant is above his master, not above his master. They're going to do the same thing. And then in verses 26 through 31, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can only destroy your body. Now, if you were at General Conference or if you watch services online, I highly recommend that you watch the Youth Day message that was on Friday and the sermon by Adam Shaw. Brother Adam Shaw preached one of the most magnificent messages from this passage that I have ever heard. And he tells him, don't fear anything. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And then he told him, don't be afraid of the person that can just kill the body, but is not able to kill the soul. But fear the God, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And Brother Shaw brought this out beautifully, for he goes on to tell them that you're valuable to me. You're more valuable than sparrows and the hairs of your head are numbered, which is a scary idea for me. But then he tells them that he's going to take care of them. So this is Matthew 10, all right? This is the passage where Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword. Matthew 10, 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. In other words, 
You cannot be a camouflage Christian. Wherever you go, if you're afraid to identify with me in the judgment, I will not identify with you. You're just trying to blend in to this world. You're trying to go unnoticed. If you're hoping that they will like you and not ask too many questions. If you're more afraid about rejection than you are them going to hell. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you if you will not confess me before men. So this is how Jesus is setting this up. Jesus was loved and he was hated. And he didn't allow this middle ground. I've already said this earlier, but this is in my notes, that you cannot love two masters. Jesus was a polarizing figure. And it was not because he was obnoxious, not because of his personality. It was because of truth. It's amazing how he had such mercy on sinners and he had such harsh words for hypocrites. Read Matthew 23, and he blisters them for their superficial religiosity and not having the weightier matters of the law in their life of justice, mercy, faith. They were just holy on the outside and impure and filthy on the inside. Which, by the way, the poster child of Pentecost will never be the person who's just got it right on the outside and doesn't have it right on the inside. We've never taught that. We've never believed that. We believe in this and that. That Jesus on the outside is working on the outside and you can have holiness of flesh and spirit. And that's how you perfect holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says. Now, Jesus is a polarizing figure. If he would have just come and taught really cool lessons, healed the sick, multiplied bread, gave them loaves and fishes, maybe he would not have been rejected. He came for those things, but those works authenticated his identity. But Jesus came and he said, I came to bear witness to the light. He's a light in the darkness. I came to bear witness of the truth. He came to save us from our sins, not in our sins. But to be saved from our sins is really embarrassing. It's humiliating. You know, a non-apostolic said that the gospel is very offensive. It's very offensive. It tells me that I am a sinner separated from God and I am going to hell. And there is nothing I can do to save myself outside of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But he loved me so much he died in my place while I was yet sinner, a sinner. And if I will come to him on his terms, have faith in him and the, his death on the cross, if I will accept and then apply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by turning from my sins of repentance, by being baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, by receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, the new birth, amen, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, which has two parts, water and spirit. You might hear about that on Sunday. Finish my trilogy of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But so to be saved, I've got to admit that I cannot save myself. 
It's offensive to think that my righteousness is but filthy rags in the sight of God. That there's none righteous, no, not one. And on my best day, without the blood of Jesus Christ covering my sins, I cannot in any way please God. Amen. That's offensive. To tell a person that they're lost and they cannot save themselves. So to be saved, you've got to, you've got to, come, to come to grips with that. And so because this truth is so powerful, it is polarizing. Because when the gospel confronts a person's sins, they have a really difficult choice to make. Am I going to humble myself before God? Or am I going to bow up and defend myself and say I'm not that bad? You know, Jesus said, speaking of himself, he gives this imagery of a rock. He said, whoever falls on this rock shall be broken. If you come to Jesus Christ and you fall on him as your Savior, you're going to be broken in your spirit. But Jesus said, whoever this rock falls on, it will grind him to powder. So you've got a really good choice to make. You can either fall on this rock and be broken or you can reject him and have him fall on you in judgment and grind you to powder. Matthew 10, 34. This is our text. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Amen. So how does truth divide? Let's look at verse 35. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's probably not that hard to do. That is not in my notes. I, I repent of saying that right now. And a man's foes, moving right along, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. Now, that's pretty strong stuff, right? So, chill out a minute. Jesus Christ is not against families. He formed the family. We have a flurry of weddings. So, I'm really deep into what God has joined together. Let not man put asunder right now. I love it. I love what God instituted in the Garden of Eden with the first man and woman, he made them husband and wife, male and female, joined together in holy matrimony. Jesus is pro-marriage, pro-family, and pro-life. And if you are not pro-all of that, you're either not a follower of Jesus or you're biblically illiterate. So... Jesus is not anti-family. So he's saying, I came to bring a sword. And there can be problems in your own house over truth. Not because you're unwise. Not because you're self-centered. You create your own problems. You created your own problems. And sometimes over truth, people separate. And it doesn't, doesn't throw off on how important family is. To, to my wife and me, family is extremely important. But in God's world, 
discipleship is even more important. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is light years away, higher. That's not the right expression. It's way more important. How's that? Now, on Sunday, this coming Sunday, we're going to be launching Bible quizzing for the coming year. Thank you, Brother Calvin, for the great information you've sent us. And we're excited about this, right? Why do we have Bible quizzing? Why do we have Bible study? Why do we have crowd chips, hyphen, crossover? We have all of these ministries because we want our people to be doctrinally literate. We want them to know what the Bible says. We want them to know the truth so the truth can make them free, right? The next generation. So that's in the context. If you don't know what the Bible says, if you're biblically illiterate, then you can have all your own ideas that are against the Bible. So truth, how does it become a divisive force? How does it become a polarizing power? So again, I'm going to reiterate this that I'm not referring to you just going toe-to-toe and face-to-face with a person and arguing religion. Sometimes that may happen. There are times Jesus did that. Paul did that. But generally, the wisdom of soul winning is to find how to reach that person as, as Philip did the Ethiopian eunuch to begin at that place, as Jesus did with the woman at the well, to start with where she was and lead her to truth. Amen. Amen. So, but ultimately, truth has a polarizing power. If you embrace truth, if you receive a love of the truth, you'll be drawn to God. If you reject truth, you'll be driven away from God. And when you take a loving and wise stand for truth, people who are not willing to take that stand by embracing truth feel convicted. And again, I'm I'm just repeating this. It's in my notes. I'm not condoning an obnoxious approach to lost people. Having your say and experiencing your view or expressing your view in a condescending manner is not wise. So um, there's the other extreme, and that's called saying nothing ever. And that's the same effect, which is nothing. I'm the silent Christian. Well, the gospel is words. How shall they preach? It's in words. It's a message. Amen? That is to be told, not just across pulpits, but across desks and tables and chairs and in cars and wherever. Amen. Now, the Bible teaches very clearly, this is now at Matthew 10, 37. We're still in, still in the same passage. He that loveth father or mother more than me. We've talked about this through the years. More than me. This is this idea of idolatry, that you love anything or anybody more than Jesus. He's not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You cannot really love your father or mother in the right way if you don't really love God first. And you can't really love your kids if you don't love God first. And the greatest damage you can do to your children is to not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to show them that life is just about putting God in his place, which is somewhere convenient for you. And Jesus is talking about discipleship. He's he's talking about this sword. 
this sword that cuts when you place things above him in your life. And, and the Bible teaches, husbands, love your wives and nurture your children. And wives, submit to your husbands, guide the home. And children, honor and obey your parents. Read Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 4, just for one example of that teaching. But the Bible way is that when you are faced with a choice between Jesus and anything or anyone else, choose Jesus Christ. And that choice sometimes brings a sort of division between you and people who do not feel that same way. Amen. Matthew 10, 38. This is the same passage. It's in the same chapter. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth me after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. This is paradoxical, right? That the way to find yourself is to lose yourself and your identity in surrender to Jesus Christ. And you'll really never find yourself until you lose yourself in submission to Jesus Christ. And I found out as a young man that if I would just give Jesus all of my dreams and hopes and questions and confusion, that he would help me sort through it and find who I was. Amen. Wonderful truth by Jesus. Matthew 10, 34, not on the screens. But think not that I'm come to send peace, but to bring a sword. Now, the power of the gospel, as I've mentioned, has a polarizing effect. And there's another way that this is expressed. And I'm going to refer to some passages in John, John chapter 1. And I'll try to go kind of quickly for the sake of time. The Bible, John is speaking about Jesus Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then in John 3, 16, that famous verse on the screens, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the Prince of Peace, right? Giving us eternal life. Then verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then watch this, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. I'm going to say from this other imagery, this is the sword. That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought of God. Remember I told you the gospel is offensive? And this most common verse in the entire Bible Anybody knows the verse in the Bible, they probably know Psalm 23 in the old, and they know John 3, 16 in the new. But if you read a few verses past, he gave his only begotten son, he came with a sword, and he came with a choice to either accept him or reject him. Right. Amen? Yeah. 
in John 8, John 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. In John 11, Jesus spoke about someone that walks in the night and stumbles because there's no light in him. Jesus spoke about his death, that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me, that magnetic pull of the cross. John 12, 34, the next verse after this uh, saying about his death. The people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Now they understood what Jesus meant about his death. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light that you may be the children of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed from them and he hid himself from them. And though he had done many miracles, verse 37 says, yet they believe not on him. How can you see somebody raised from the dead or blinded eyes open? How can you see that evidence and not believe that the saying of Isaiah might the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Well, it doesn't mean that God wouldn't let them believe. They could not believe because Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes or understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is the sword That divides. That here is this light. Here is truth. And every one of us have the choice of receiving this truth or rejecting it. And again, I'm not talking just about fundamental salvation. In all the context of these verses, it is really accepting Jesus Christ as God in flesh. It is turning to Jesus with all of your heart. And the Bible speaks of believing on the Lord. It is turning to him with all of your life as your only hope of salvation as your Lord. So we can say believe on the Lord and we know the implications of that. We know what it means to believe on the Lord. But all of these passages are talking about whether or not you receive Jesus Christ into your life or you reject him as light of truth, as truth. And here are people in John 12. They saw miracles. They heard his words. They knew that he was true. They knew that it was, they were going to pay a price. Jesus has already talked about this in Matthew 10. Fathers, mothers, family, rejection of family, the rejection of friends. And for fear of that, for fear of those consequences, people would rather keep temporal relationships, relationships that are only for time. And reject what matters for eternity. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Not willing to pay the price of being a disciple. So 
I'm encouraging you tonight as I preach truth and we preach truth and God begins to speak to you, whatever it is in your life, that you fully embrace what God speaks to you and you never reject it. John gave us this imagery of light and darkness and Jesus spoke about the sword and I want to make sure that I walk in that light that I embrace truth in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this polarizing power of the gospel. I'm skipping along even though I told you I shortened this. But John 6, 66. That's a good verse. Reference, right? 6, 6, 6. Remember it like that. John 6, 6, 6. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And there are several places in the Bible, three in Matthew, one in John, that the phrase from that time is used. And they're all turning points in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But from that time, this was like a trigger. It was a pivotal point. It was something that happened that all of a sudden, they were kind of going along. Everything was great. But then there was this truth in John chapter 6 that Jesus was revealing to them about uh, you know, he said, he asked them, does this offend you? Well, yeah, it offended them. They went back and walked with him no more. But then he asked the disciples, you also go away? Well, like Jesus, you're not going to have anybody. And you're down to 12. Don't you even care? Your popularity, the polls. But it's truth and not truth. And God doesn't, he's not any lesser when we reject him is us amen and then simon peter said lord to whom shall we go thou hast the words of eternal life in this polarizing moment many walk away they go back and walk with him no more but that same experience that same confrontation of truth causes them to open their heart and their arms and embrace Jesus Christ more than ever before. It's what we do with truth that really matters. Amen. If you don't mind, please stand. Musicians are coming. Uh, many years ago, when I was youth pastor in Jackson, I guess I was assistant pastor at this time. I think it was 1980. We had a major, incredible revival, eight weeks in the summer. And the air conditioners went out, and it was hot. And uh, they called it a thousand soul revival, but we know had records, almost 600 people that received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we retained in that church over 200 people from that revival. It was amazing. And, uh, but sadly, there were people who had hung around the fringes for years. That in, in like the heat of that revival, in the power of that revival, at a point when you would think if anybody was ever going to be saved, there was a lot of preaching about prophecy. If you were ever going to get scared, you would have been scared in some of those services. It was judgment preaching to pull sinners out of the flames. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible says some saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire. But, but I had young people that I had worked with. They were young adults. They were people. And 
And in that incredible revival, while so many people were drawn to God, there were, there were quite a few people that just made that, that turning point that they went back and walked with him no more. It was hard to understand. It was hard to wrap your brain around that. But when you really come face to face with truth, every one of us individually, not corporately, every one of us individually have to make a decision you know, like Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. You know, we've all got to make that decision. And I think we make it once, but then I think we make it again over and over. Every time we're confronted with a decision. I'm preaching this message for several reasons. A, I feel led of the Lord to. That's a good thing, right? Obey my boss, the Lord. But secondly, I feel like we need to give people the chance to receive the gospel. We need to give them the chance. We need to go to those cities. And maybe you've got to shake your, the dust off your feet and, and they reject you and they reject Jesus. But we should give them that chance. Right? And then in our lives, we need to make sure that we submit to his lordship. Have you ever heard this expression the same wax, the same sun, excuse me, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You know, that's a neat little saying. But the heat of the sun is constant. The variable is the substance. The heat of the sun, wax melts. The heat of the sun, clay hardens. And the gospel has that same effect. Same gospel the sower went forth to sow. The seed is the same. The sower is the same. The soil is the variable, right? Our hearts are the variable. I like what Hosea said to break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. I want to make sure that when God shines a light of understanding in my life, calls me to commitment, calls me to decision, that the condition of my heart melts, softens, doesn't harden. Why don't we gather and pray for a few minutes before we go today? Ask the Lord.